special episode of Shit Platypus Says. My name is Pam Nogales. Lori Rojas will be joining me soon with a number of our members to discuss 50 years after 68, does socialism have a future? The recent European conference hosted by the Platypus Affiliated Society at Goldsmiths, University of London. And with us are Gregor Balshak from the University of Illinois in Chicago, Nunzia Fays, who you might remember from our last podcast, he's our chapter head at the London School of Economics, Patrick McGuire from Goldsmiths, and Aaron Haigwood from the University of Chicago. Our program for this year's conference included a discussion on anti-racism in the age of Trump and Brexit. Then we had our opening plenary on the legacy of 68, a panel on the housing crisis in London, and another on Marxism and feminism, and our closing plenary, what is the future of socialism? We had panelists ranging from Alex Demirovich from the Rosa Luxemburg Institute, members of several of the left organizations in the UK, including the CPGB, the Socialist Workers' Party, and the International Bolshevik Tendency. We also had Soviet dissident Boris Kardelitsky and feminist icon Judith Shapiro, a housing activist from the Architects for Social Housing, Simon Elmer, as well as many others. The recordings for all of the panels are available online, and I will be linking those in the episode description on SoundCloud, so take a listen when you can. Okay, let's get started. Some of the Platypus members, we finished the European Conference 2018, and we thought that we would hear from our members about some of the things that stayed with them or maybe questions that they have. Welcome, everybody. I'm Lori. I'm here also. <laughs> Lori is always here. In case, in case those of you listening haven't caught on, we're co-hosting this this show together. So Lori will always be here. So we were talking right before we started recording about, we just had a teach-in with the Soviet dissident Boris Kargolitsky, who gave a teach-in on the first year of Trump. Something that came up during the European conference was the way in which the left understands the present moment and the current transformation, and whether or not those on the left, including ourselves, can grasp the change and what it would mean to grasp this change. Yeah, I mean, this is an age of incredible volatility politically. As I mentioned a couple of days ago, I think this is the first time I ever experienced politics in my life. Bourgeois politics, politics where you use nuclear bombs as a threat against other countries and so forth, which is not a desirable situation in any way whatsoever. But still, there are politics going on between countries, negotiations going on between countries, where I, as what I would have thought as a Marxist, have actually no clue how to relate to. We had speakers who were saying that, you know, Brexit was clearly a racist vote, and another speaker who said, I, as a Leninist, of course, supported Brexit, right? Um, there's, I mean, so I, I actually can't know what to think of Brexit, because I think I'm lacking the language I'm not being provided with the context and understanding the volatility of the moment that we're living in. Hence, everything's left to the right. Just like a shout-out, um, you can check out the video of that panel that Gregor's talking about that he spoke on, on the uh, Platypus Affiliated Society Facebook page. So I highly recommend you check it out. We live-streamed it, uh, and that's the politics of anti-racism in the age of Trump and Brexit. 
But I love the way that you put it. You were like, I was born after, I was born in 1989. Mm-hmm. So I've never experienced politics. <laughs> At the end of history, yeah. And the, the panel that was mentioned, because I was one of the speakers, what I was trying to say there, that, for instance, the, the idea that we were living in an age of approaching fascism and white supremacy and so forth just feels as a, as a mode of analysis incredibly inadequate to, to what we're going through. Well, and, but there was another mm-hmm. there was another offering on the table. I mean, apart from you know, this is something that we complain about a lot. The left turns the election of Donald Trump as an expression of racism and sexism. What would it mean to think about it politically? And I think we did ask our panelists, and they went there with us. But the response was that we may need to start defending the welfare state. Um, I mean, we got this not just from Boris Kargolitsky, but from others. Even Jack Conrad from the CPGB was saying, well, at the end of the day, we need to stand behind the NHS. Well, and I thought Boris Kargolitsky's point was, like, especially symptomatic because he brought in the question of ideology, which I think was perhaps the most productive part of the What is Socialism panel, for example, or the Future of Socialism panel, that came up in his talk, too. Um, when he talked about, you know, protectionism and the welfare state and how the left needs to take up this demand for the welfare state. And it really troubled me. I mean, I tried to ask this question not to just, like, you know, plug my own question again or something, but that he does sound like the DSA. That's what these kids are saying is the same thing. And yet they are unable to, they are out of step with the actual ideological changes that are happening in society. And I think that's really what we've been dealing with from the beginning to the end of this conference um, is the ideological shifts in society and how can we think about them and how can we understand them and how might we miss them and why? Like, Yeah, actually, I think it's worth it to listen to all the recordings of the conference because of the way that things actually were crossing each other throughout and building and we were raising questions that were building on previous panels even though the topics were very different, but everything, like the NHS came up in every single panel yeah. and that conversation evolved. Here's a clip from the closing plenary, What is the Future of Socialism, from Boris Kargolitsky. I feel absolutely convinced that uh, the neoliberal model of capitalism is completely exhausted. And it looks like the time of political stability and the time of predictability within the system is over. And theoretically, this is exactly the moment of opportunity for the left and for those who want some kind of progressive change to take place. However, it's not only the neoliberal model of capitalism which seems to be exhausted, but also in many ways the traditional politics of the left, which are exhausted as well. And this is probably not the first time when the left faces a very deep crisis at the very moment when capitalism is in crisis. There is a certain logic to it. Because we shouldn't forget, for example, the very moment of the deepest crisis of the left reported so far, which was 1914, which was definitely a tremendous crisis of the capitalist system. The First World War was a, a catastrophic crisis of the system. In many ways, it was a collapse of the system as it used to be. But at the same time, it was a collapse of the Second International. Uh, with regard to this interaction between uh, Boris Kargolitsky and Bill Tickton, um, where Today in the teaching, like Boris Kagerlitsky recognized this agreement that they had about like, well, we're at the end of ideology, 
Um, we have to go beyond ideology because capitalism is like just a race to the bottom. Like we're, we've run out of ideas. Like and it's just it's just like objectively it's necessary. Like that we need this to happen. Uh, like this this being the revolution. Um, and so like and, but but uh, what Hillel Tickton was saying was like well uh, we've actually like lost the opportunity that, that we had in the 30s with like the huge factories and you know it's like the workers are so disparately organized now. And the conversation Pam Aaron and I had actually about this was what, Great conversation. What, what's like what, what's actually missing there is like um, that these big factories that that's like a holdover from imperialism, which is like a the one set of ideology that's that's not the same. So a good example of that of like how that's the case is in the 70s like the miner strikes in England. Um, they attempted to like use this kind of strategic like we're gonna like pull the emergency brake on the energy supply uh, to try and get our demands met. And you know, Margaret Thatcher is like a crime is a crime is a crime is a crime. I'm just gonna ignore you guys because it was it became plausible that you didn't have to, that 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 was uh, not necessary. It became plausible that you could continue with, without uh, the miners. And so, uh, what's plausible uh, politically changes uh, in capitalism. Well, that's just the point about bringing up the big factories too. Is that this is a naturalization of the course of imperialism and of uh, the Fordist post-war period? Um, because, and this is something that we were talking about, Pim uh, and and I, and also Ephraim, is that in the 19th century, um, you know, in 1848, for instance, it's not like you had these massive factories where all the workers were working in the same place, and that's why they thought of their work as communal in some way, right? It came from the ideology of the socialists at the time, right. and from the bourgeois ideology coming from uh, the revolt of the third estate in the French Revolution. Um, and so really, all of these different like objective arguments we got were like categorized symptoms of different points of ideology where people were just like stuck there. <laughs> and, and then particularly with the new left panel. It was um, interesting how uh, the welfare state, you know, uh, how all of these ideas were sort of presented as if they were like new ideas. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in fact they have not only are they old ideas, but I mean defending the welfare state is something that you know, the left has done since you know the nineteen sixties. Yeah, but the 1970s. Um, and it's strange you know, to find all of these ideas as presented as if they were you know, new sort of response to crisis of neoliberalism. Also, just to emphasize, Lucy, one of our members here in London, uh, raised the point that one of the things that, at least in the 60s, was grasped was a critique of the welfare state, actually, that there was a rejection of this previous model of depending on the state and the as the mediator the early New Left, and that in some ways, you know, we complain a great deal about the legacy of the New Left and the kind of obstruction that sometimes it can be for thinking politically, and yet one of its original points of departure from the earlier period was that it didn't want to depend on the state as a kind of mediator. So in some sense, we're falling below the threshold of the aspirations, maybe the highest aspirations of the new left, if we keep on rehearsing this defense of the welfare state. One very interesting uh, panel we've had um, was on Saturday morning about anti-gentrification. Um, the housing question in London. Housing question in London we had Two housing, two and a half housing activists. Uh, so two actual activists and one architect, scholar who's worked in China, uh, who understood, understood himself as a modernist. And his position was actually quite interesting, which is the left lacks vision and a sort of. He didn't say it quite like that, but that I felt like Austin Williams. Austin Williams, that the left sort of lacked, which I took to be a certain sense of optimism. What I, what I got a lot during this conference is 
what the left needs to be than the left needs to exist because things are going to hell if it's not going to be for us. Um, and I'm not sure that that's immediately the case. So what precisely does the left actually have to offer in terms of an optimistic vision of, of the future? Um, he brought that out pretty well. And perhaps one last point about that panel. What came out also interesting was um, an activist from ASH, Simon uh, Elmer, Simon Elmer uh, who sort of pushed, initially pushed the um, anti-gentrification line. One very interesting moment during that panel came when he said, uh, maybe housing in London is so expensive, not because of the free market, but because the state isn't in cahoots with, with, uh, with the developers. And that was a fantastic, interesting moment. So, and something that's worth considering, the, the role of the free market and the role of the state in actually botching the free market. You know, just a quick response to that. Yeah, that was the end. That was his closing comment. And it was very interesting because he had just told us, look, I'm not a politician. I'm not really a political person. You know, I have this project. And yet he gave one of the most pointed critiques of the Labour Party in the entire conference. And he, he was like, this is not enough. If you actually are troubled by the housing crisis, you can support the party that's essentially in cahoots with these people. And he's like, go read the policies. Go find out for yourself what yeah. the Labour Party is actually supporting with regards to housing. Uh, that collective independence of activity, uh, or, or activism, if you want to call it, that we had in 2015 has kind of formed itself into this I think incredibly naive and very uninformed belief that if we get Jeremy Corbyn into the government of this country, we're suddenly all going to be okay. Um, and that simply is not going to happen. If you look at the policies, the housing policies of the Labour Party, they now call themselves the party of home ownership, for Christ's sake. Um, Labour councils are the main primary implementers and innovators of a state demolition and redevelopment. That's one of the things that we do. We try and get people to read these bloody policies and realise that voting the Labour Party is not going to solve other things. I'm not, a, I'm not a politician. But in housing policy, what is going on now in a state demolition is a Labour Party policy. There is no split between these so-called Blairite councils and the, you know, the Corbynites. Like, that just doesn't exist. Read the stuff. Read our stuff. We've written housing files about it. Austin William, several points here. We've talked about how uh, millennials had fallen below the sort of horizons of the 1980s on this question of like, you know, housing and gentrification. Um, and he traced back to, funny enough, to 1989. He seems to suggest that um, the left hadn't recovered from the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union. Well, that certainly seems to be the case. I mean, her opening plenary was 50 years after 1968. And Erin, you know, she asked the question, we were all kind of asking this question, but I think she yeah. asked it best. And she was like, well, so the question is that the new left move on from the problems of Stalinism. Was it capable of moving forward? Can you say that it moved forward? And no one wanted to actually answer the question. In fact, Jack Conrad was like, well, I don't know what you mean by the new left. Is it new? Is it old? Is it new? Is it old? And then they continued to have the argument between there was a mouse on the panel, Robert Borba, from the Revolutionary Communist Party USA, and there were there was one ex-Trotskyist, and then I would say two, you know, commonly aligned, I guess, against the Maoist on the panel. And what they had in common, the three on the one side and Robert Borba on the other side was this problem of Stalinism and how they were desperately trying to rehash the, the arguments of the new left. What, you know, what side do you take when Soviet tanks invade Czechoslovakia? 
Like, what did this mean? And it was very educational because we think of 1989 and, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall as like the end of history. And yet all of the weight of those problems are very much with us. And there's still ideological blocks that the left runs up against whenever it tries to imagine a politics. And we just sort of saw it acted out in the opening plenary. I mean, listening to Hillel Tipton, it was like I was some student in like the 60s or 70s listening to this like leftist tell me. transported in time. I was, yeah. <laughs> it was really, yeah, it's like some of the old debates they were just having. In the 40s, there were direct fights on the university, be it prosecutors and so on. That's the kind of background that it, it had existed. <clears throat> it was real. And the idea which was put forward that somehow you have to ignore Trotsky's nonsense. <clears throat> After all, just consider what happened to them. How many were killed, directly killed, by Stalin in 1935? Uh, as, as people know, <clears throat> the, uh, the, those in the camps were called out and shot. We know of the survivors because the person who drove the horse and cart happened to be a Trotskyist and by accident survived. Now, what I get from this in part is this terror which existed should never exist again. And I agree uh, with a lot of what was said about this never repeating itself. But we don't have to beat ourselves up about it. This was nothing to do with the left. It was a counter-revolution, a starless counter-revolution, which has nothing to do with us. In 1968, there, were <clears throat> there was a clear change going on. Stalinism was in trouble for the first time, really in trouble. 56, you had an uprising in uh, Hungary. 68, in fact, in, Ch in Czechoslovakia, and Soviet troops marched. Th that was crucial for the period because here people in the West were looking at the way the Soviet Union oppressed peoples and individuals as well. There was a resistance to Robert Borbus' comments mm -hmm. um, because they were very hostile to Maoism and, you know, not for terrible reasons. And I disagreed with a lot of what Robert Borba had to say. But one of the things that he did say at the very end of the plenary in his final comments in response to Jack Conrad defending the NHS was, well, do you really just want the workers bureaucratic state? Is that the horizon? Is that what you aim for? And they didn't respond to him. They like couldn't hear him. Stalinism was brought up, and I kind of wanted to put a question to you guys, which is what when Platypus says Stalinism, what do we mean under that? But let me uh, take a stab at that and see if we're actually all on the same page. Generally, if you talk to regular people, Stalinism will be associated with terror and authoritarianism. The way I understand it is that's not quite what we mean. What we mean is an adaptation to a politically fairly conservative situation, um, meaning why would we say that what, years and years after the, certainly Stalin's death, but also the end of the Soviet Union, do we still see Stalinism uh, present? Well, in terms of popular front politics, meaning uh, uniting around a common, sort of lowest common denominator type performance politics, which actually winds up uh, providing uh, foot soldiers for a right-wing liberal party, such as the Democrats, which has been the case in the, 
in the case of the American left since the 30s, that because some, some right-wing phenomena are bad, um, we need to support uh, the least terribly right-wing party, right? So that's not, it's far from just the common understanding of Stalinism, of authoritarianism and terror, right? So did I get yeah, yeah, this I okay? Yeah, yeah, you were nodding. I was nodding, yeah. Well, right, it's like, well, I think another point is like liquidation of the goal of socialism. Mm -hmm. It's like another like yes. um, useful, um, not definition, but like formulation of, of the term. Mm -hmm. um, well, something that is, I think, important to bear in mind, especially when we're trying to think about Stalinism and the 50 years of 68 panel, is that, of course, for example, when Halal Tikhtin talks about Stalinism, or when they talk about Czechoslovakia, it does seem as though they're just talking about this authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's important for us to like consider how that might be a way of them understanding what we are identifying as reformism, um, or as an adaptation to failure as an adaptation to kind of putting off the revolution, that this was processed via the problem of authoritarianism and via the issue of, uh, for example, the Hungarian uprising, which came up. I suppose what I'm meaning to say by this is that it did seem obscure how we were dealing with 1917 on that panel, because in some ways it seemed as though 1917 kept coming up. Um, I was actually really surprised. At the very beginning of the panel, it was like, is this just finally us doing a 1917 panel mm. um, on our 1968 panel? Um, and then later it kind of became... the other this... way around too, by the way. Yeah. Well, yeah. 68. Well, this is yeah. why we had the 68 panel. This was because we were like, oh, like all that they wanted to talk about on the 1917 panel was 1968. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And all they wanted to talk about in the 1968 panel was so 1917. 1917. Yeah. In this weird <laughs> way, though, right? Through the defeat, through the most kind of liquidation, the moment in where it's really clear that it's over, that the possibility is far behind. This is a clip from the closing statement by Robert Borba from the Revolutionary Communist Party USA in our opening plenary 50 years after 68. Halal said that, so, that defines Stalinism as socialism in one country. It cannot exist. It's not viable. It's not possible. I think people should think seriously about what that means. Here you're, you're Lenin, okay? You're sitting there in 1918. You've led a revolution. You are counting on the German revolutionaries to come to your aid. You, you're envisaging this whole process of revolution throughout Europe, and it didn't happen, okay? It didn't happen. Now, what do you do? Can't, well, it can't exist. It's not viable. There's only one way that you can interpret that logic. Give up. That's it. It's not going to work. You might as well give up now and avoid the hardship. That's wrong. That's what Lenin and the Bolshevik Party said. No. Look, this isn't the situation we wanted. Could have been a lot better. Needed to be a lot better. But we've got, the, the proletariat has risen up and taken power in this country. What are we going to do with it? We're surrounded, the imperialists are invading us. We're fighting like hell for survival. What are we going to do? We're going to do the best we can. Why? For the world revolution. Because you've got a little base area there. You don't give that up. You give that up, you're harming the interest of oppressed humanity. Can I add one definition of Stalinism, since Gregor asked? It's Trotsky's definition, you know, the turning defeat into a victory. Um, and in that way, actually, that was the question we were asking. So does the New Left consider itself to be progress? 
Does it consider itself to be superseding the problems of the old left? Or does it recognize that it really couldn't solve the problems that they inherited from the old left? No one gave us an answer. And the question was asked, and if you hear the recording, it was asked by several members of the, uh, in the audience in different forms. And I think that the answer, therefore, is no. They didn't move from the problems of the old left. Yeah. There's like a reconsideration of what it would mean to take up Marxism in the 20th century after the failure of it from the 19th century that like they all like these people like all tried to seriously do probably at some point I mean especially Borba and Shapiro who are, are actually a part of this earlier like pre-68 moment and were tra- their political views were transformed in 68 um, and Robert so- Borba said he was a pacifist mm-hmm. and that he then turned to Maoism which obviously is not a pacifist tradition as a result of the political events of his time. Exactly. Right, and so on the other side of that, there's like this party turn, both with the Spartacist League and with the Maoists. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what, what, so like, it did, we didn't get into the deep history of the 70s then, or like mm-hmm. the, the Black Power turn. Mm-hmm. We ended up going like backwards, Back. even further. Well, my articulation is my last point on the 68 panel is that um, it really showed like 68 as like a prism of the long 20th century. Like really 20th century, but also to a certain degree, the depressant figured in it, the long 20th century. And like in a way in which like everything was revolving, not only as a metaphor, but for for that moment of like, there's a crisis, there's a turn, there's some sort of translation. Even though the year itself doesn't necessarily, I think more than once because like, the year itself doesn't mean anything. And yet the year itself brings up all these questions. This is a clip from our Marxism and Feminism panel. The speaker is Roxanne Baker, a member of the International Bolshevik Tendency. The welfare state and transitional demands, I think it's really important to make the distinction between them. We, we know that the NHS, for example, which you mentioned, is just, it's just the, the, the crumbs of imperialism. That's why we had it, sort of still have it. Um, and nothing more, really. Transitional demands are what revolutionaries use to bring in that bigger picture, to push for a different framework. The NHS is designed to contain us within this framework, to, to give us um, some crumbs, and, no, and I'm not demeaning those crumbs, like without the NHS, which is what um, the American working class live with, we can see the devastation of that. Um, but the welfare state is something very different from transitional demands, I think. I mean, we, we might win some reforms through fighting for the transitional demands, but um, the reformists who fight just as vigorously to a certain extent to maintain that, that, welfare, that welfare state are not doing it to head towards a different t- type of society. They are very much doing it to, to make this one better. And that's what distinguishes us um, from reformists, and that's what distinguishes us from feminists as well. You want to switch? Um, I, I was thinking the women's panel, as or the Marxism and feminism panel. It's a it's a good follow up. Yeah, we can talk about the. Oh Marxism boy! Identity identity politics didn't come up because um, I mean one of our key speakers, Penny, had to cancel. But I mean, we are hoping, of course, for her to um, provide a written response. Yeah, it would be good to have a response from her. Response, yeah. We had Roxanne Baker from the International Bolshevik Tendency, Judith Shapiro from the London School of Economics, and a former Spartacist, but a long time ago. And Judith and Shapiro, and yeah. Sarah McDonald, who is a member of the Communist Party of Great Britain, stepped in at the last moment. CBGB. Uh, CBGB. Yeah. 
You were moderating Erin, so why I was moderating the panel. I mean, I think there are some interesting moments during that panel, Um, particularly Judith Shapiro was kind of, she was a bit of a, a frustrating spot, I think, for the audience and for the other speakers during that panel. I mean, not only is she, like, their hero, so this is something that kind of came up, is that, like, Roxanne Baker and also probably Sarah McDonald had, like, read the works of Judith Shapiro mm. and the Spartacists um, on the women's question. They brought up the magazines of the Spartacy launch, yeah. Women and Revolution, which it's highly recommended people look into that as well, it's that history. You know, and now she's, like, here kind yeah, of well, against the yeah, whole thing. Really, I think, you know, Me Too was addressed, um, but it was really at the end when we started talking about um, the personal is political and the question of power. And my personal annoyance was that the question of power was actually not answered, as in it was answered without getting an answer. It's all about power, and yet, like, there was not a question about taking power. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, so there's power in these personal relationships we have, but the personal is political is bad. So that's still bad, but there's power in these personal sexual relationships we have. Um, And that's like kind of unspecified. Like I felt as though kind of the assumption, which is that women have no power and men have power over them was left. It was left in place. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though people talked about employers, I still think it really was left in place, one. And then two, it wasn't about the question of taking power. It wasn't about the question of how does, you know, if we're really talking about women's liberation, if we're talking about a power dynamic, what is the relationship of this to Marxism, to the dictatorship of the proletariat? And to the state. And to the state. Yes. And Ephraim tried to ask that, actually, because he brought up Adorno, sexual taboos in the law today, um, and he brought up how Adorno says that perhaps, right, um, the social worker is a greater threat to a woman than her abusive husband. Um, which, of course, during the high period of the welfare state was absolutely true. Um, and what that means is that the state is a higher concern for a housewife that gets beaten than her own husband, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what would the state actually do with that woman in that problem? Yeah. There was a moment in the panel when uh, Lori asked, what do Marxists have to offer women? Like, what's the, what's the pitch, you know? And what's the pitch today, right? Not throughout time, but today. Like, if you're a Marxist, what do you have to say on the question of women's liberation? And I have to say, I was, I was extremely disappointed, and I had a bit of an outburst at the, during the Q&A, because I, I, we were standing in front of three people who at one point considered themselves to be, or currently consider themselves to be, serious Marxists, and they were all a bit soft on the issue that Me Too, you can consider as a kind of propaganda campaign that ends up propping up the Democratic Party, that ends up propping up these like bourgeois politicians. And it was as if it was like taboo to say it because they didn't want to offend people. <laughs> well, and Judith Shapiro could not understand your question. She just could not understand it at all because she just thought, oh, this is like conspiratorial. And... You know, she I'm said to, it. She said it. She said it. She just think it. She said it. And I, I tried to explain it to her, too. I stepped in. I was like, you know, I'm going to use my, like, moderator token to, like, step in in this situation. Um, because, obviously, you know, you're not suggesting that some Democratic Party, like, brain tinkerers Right, it's like calling creating. up Selma Hayek. And it's like, you know, you really have to publish that piece and, like, denounce your sexual abuser. That's not what's happening. That's not I what's happening. I think it has to do with the reason that she was also so allergic to, like, Trotskyism and the Sparks. Um, and her own history as a Marxist. Yes. Like, she really did not want to think about it, and that was why this, like, conspiratorial, like, Marxism came up, 
But we can talk about power in the abstract. But as yeah. long as you put, you don't put a name to it, it's fine. If you call the power of the Democratic Party, it's conspiratorial. The moment it's political, it's a conspiracy. What was really interesting was um, the identity politics finally came out in a sense, like like a layover from the previous panel that she was on, because the the, the Mexican feminism panel happened the day after the 1968 panel, and so like you know she started off the panel. Judith Shapiro started the panel, um, very proud, expressing like pride for the work that she did in the 70s on, the, on with women's liberation, mm-hmm. and she like said that she's a uh, you know she's on the map in the textbooks, um, you know. Uh, the, she it seems like she had this ambivalence with her Marxism because of Stalinism, um, but like what she finds redeemable um, is this like liberal uh, discontent that she tried to uh, advance. It's interesting that. It becomes a distraction, actually, from the question of Marxism, but at the same time, she knows that it's not Marxism. Because she was saying, like, I'm not a Marxist, but I know what Marxism is. And I know, like, the Spartacist League was never Marxism. And I know, like, that you guys aren't Marxists. And what I know is, like, I'm interested in me, too. And then she also said, said, well, maybe I don't know what Marxism is. But everyone Uh actually said something really interesting to me about this, is that sometimes it seems as though Judith Shapiro just, like, thinks that Marxism is, like, Stalinism. And like this weird caricature, and then sometimes it seems as though she thinks it's like just this failed potential, and that she's open to the question of, you know, Marxism today being perhaps completely different to anything that she could imagine. And so that there's like this esoteric like ambivalence that is perhaps educational, and then it just gets drowned in Stalinism. <laughs> By the way, just to clarify, for the purpose of Platypus, she was an incredibly effective speaker because oh, she actually displayed the kind of symptomology this ambivalence with what to do, calling yourself a Marxist after Stalinism, and what it might mean to still call yourself a Marxist today, though you don't know what it means. She was that. She had a lot to teach in that regard. I wish that I was, right now, maybe Hillel will do this better, that I still believed in the things I used to believe in. I still have those values. However, I don't see how we organize it. I believe the reason that everybody is capitalist is that we haven't got a better way yet. And I say yet because I believe that capitalism is still developing the forces of production. Unfortunately, it is also creating these horrible dangers. So the idea that Rosa Luxemburg indeed had, that we face socialism or barbarism, it might be real. But when I left the Spartacist League, as I wrote in my or my resignation. If it's going to be socialism or barbarism, I'm worried it's going to be barbarism because I don't see what socialism is going to be like immediately. And if it's going to be barbarism, I think I'll enjoy the last couple of years. Um, and <laughs> I was being flippant, but I'm really serious. All of the speakers we've had were critical of, say, Jeremy Corbyn or of Hillary Clinton or Obama and so on. And yet, when it came down to actually criticizing them politically, they all balked at the idea. Yeah. Um, which of course, you know, raised, you know, the question of politics, which also came up you know, quite a lot on the you know, the future of socialism panel. Right. Um, though it was of course Im- implicitly there that throughout yeah. the conference was, you know, well, what is politics? You know, and what should what should we be doing, you know, as a leftists. lot of people had different answers to that. Yeah. It raised a lot of questions. Maybe we're a little confused, but I feel like this was like the conference of 1848 somehow at the end. That was like the best part. I had my mom with that too. Is that I was like sitting in the 
what is the future of socialism panel? And sometimes I like will get this like feeling while I'm listening to a panel that like somebody's about to like divulge something to me, and I just have to like learn it. And I was sitting there and I had that and I was like, what is it? And I was like, oh, it's about 1848 and the crisis of ideology. And then I was like, this whole conference has just been about 1848 and like. And it really recognized <laughs> what 1848 was. was exactly. I mean, hence why I brought Bonapartism up in Boris Karnilitsky's thing, right? Like, well, because it's a question that Judith Shapiro still has, that we also still have, which is, you know, at the end of the day, today, what it might mean to be a Marxist. And it sounds very esoteric to say, but it might mean to figure out why Marxism anyway, right? Meaning, yeah. 1848 is that question. Why do you need the dictatorship of the proletariat? Why was that something that Marx thought was his only contribution, really? And we are still left with the question. And I think it may be confusing to keep asking it from people who might not even adopt it as part of their political program, and yet insofar as they're calling themselves socialists and Marxists, we should continue to do so. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's time. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yay.